All right, so let's get into this. We're on emphasis four of the series called Rediscovering and Restoring Biblical Christianity. The emphasis are up here, and they're kind of on a rotating thing. So um, emphasis uh, zero was actually on why we need to have uh, a period and a time and a focus on restoring biblical Christianity. Our thesis is that contemporary Christianity gives the most lip service since probably the days of the Pharisees themselves to being biblical Christianity while actually practicing the Bible the least of any version of Christianity that's ever been on this planet in any century. That's the thesis of this. If you, I hope you hear what I'm saying. We give more, there's more saying that we're Bible-believing Christians uh, with less actual taking that seriously uh, than probably ever before. Many, many Christians have never even read the whole Bible. If all Scripture is inspired by God, um, it would be a little bit like, I, I always pick on the newlyweds, it'd be a little bit like if Daniel Williams were to say, you know, Christiana has written me lots of encouraging notes, and someday I'm going to get around to reading some of them. <laughs> you know, right? Like, I don't know about you, but I, like, I, I'm a, I have a lot of trouble not, not actually reading my text while I'm driving. I don't, but it's like, and, you know, like I, I wish, especially on Sunday mornings, people wouldn't do these chains of texts where like 10 people are included because, you know, they tell you about this, this meeting you have to be at at 2 o'clock or whatever. And, and I'm thankful that Deanna and Christiana and Stephen and do all that because I just like to be told where to be and when. <laughs> I don't like to think about it. Um, but... Um, but then everybody has to go, you know, like answer, I'll be there, you know, okay, thank you. And it's like, I need, I need 15 of those popping up on my phone while I'm, you know, uh, trying to drive. But anyway, um, you know, it, it's, it like, I, I have a difficult time not reading all of your text and believe me, uh, most meetings that I'm in, like I'll meet with someone for an hour or so. And by the end of that meeting, I have 8 to 12 texts. Uh, this happens all the time. But I don't just go, oh, you know, uh, this is a text, you know, from Jonathan Maddox. Uh, you know, I'll put that in my category of someday I'm going to read all the Jonathan Maddox texts. Like, we don't do that, right? And so why do we do that with Scripture? If we really believed it was a word from God the God who made the universe, we'd be pretty intent about studying it. Right? And that is one of the craziest things, you know, like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word. Uh, what is that? Second Peter 2 or 1 Peter 2? 1 Peter 2, 1 through 3. And of course, I, you've heard this a million times. One of my favorite memories is when they brought Carla Weiss into Catherine Weiss about 20 minutes after she was born and she immediately started breastfeeding and she hadn't read any books on why she needs to breastfeed she hadn't heard my seven-part series on the advantages of breastfeeding <laughs> you know that's all just a joke of course you know the fact is uh, if you're alive you eat and it, like the fact that we have to constantly try to encourage people to make some kind of priority about the scriptures is more symptomatic of the fact that uh, maybe we're not as alive in Christ as we think we are. Because live people eat a lot. Ask me how I know. So, Sindhu wasn't that good pizza. Um... The whole thing of loving God, the reason this whole series starts with that is, uh, you know, the whole point of Christianity isn't that we would have, you know, someday be able to afford to get rid of this ugly carpet or, or have the right candles or the right vestments or, you know, practice Lent the right way or whatever. The you know, what God mostly wants, anything we talk about with spiritual disciplines, with 
community with the, the advantages in how to do community, let's say, and how to work through conflict together, all these kind of things. The end of it all is that God wants to have a love relationship with you. If you would put yourself in God's perspective, one of the things, it is really an advantage having raised kids and grandkids. And the, part of the advantage is because what you want, like one of the reasons grandkids are so wonderful, is because you can just love on them and spoil them and you don't have to worry about them like you did the free. Like, you know, I'm not, I'm not necessarily worried about whether I can afford to send them to college. <laughs> you know, so, and then you can play with them how much you want and give them back. But, uh, but, <laughs> but what you want is you want relationship, right? And if you put yourself in God's position, what God wants more than anything else is he loves you, and he wants to be intimate with you. He wants your fellowship to be sweet. And he's more excited. In, you know, we think, you know, like, I've got to do my, you know, I only did devotions four days instead of six this week, and, and i got to check off my boxes of six chapters or whatever our, my goal is or whatever. What God wants is that whatever spiritual disciplines we have, which we need, but it's not because you have to do them. Uh, in fact, I always say you've got to reposition yourself in terms of grace every day. You don't do spiritual disciplines because God is going to love you anymore or because you're going to be any more acceptable. All of that was granted to you in Christ. And you do it for the same reason that Daniel Williams actually does read Christiana's notes. <laughs> because, you know, like, it's always amazing to me. I, I, you know, I've had the privilege of doing about 100 weddings or so as a pastor. And uh, in most, more than 90 some of those are people that we've discipled for several years and watched their growth in the Lord and you know, the thing we're most happy with of all the ups and downs and, and disappointments and, and excitements in ministry is that of all the people that we've discipled before they uh, courted and got married, we've never had anyone that's had a particularly difficult marriage. Uh, most of the people that have struggled with their marriage that we've helped over the years came to us already married and already struggling. And even then, we've had a pretty good uh, our success rate in terms of helping the marriages eventually get really good. So that's wonderful and very rewarding, and that's my favorite part of the whole ministry deal. But I love watching people court because it's amazing how many, like, I don't know why this is, but we tend to attract a lot of straight-A type of students. You know, like, um, a lot of the people that come to our uh, campus ministry in Bowling Green, the, the three churches we've started in Dayton, Columbus, since this is our fourth church that we've started, we've done about eight campus ministries. And we tend to attract a lot of people who get have like 3.9s and so forth. And, um, you know, those people are always busy. But then when they start courting, they, they have all these hours to talk on the phone every night, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and it's like, you know, you ask them, like, how much are you talking on the phone? Like three hours, four hours, you know, just get married already so you don't have to go home, uh, <laughs> you know. Um, so anyway, that's all about the love of God. Like that's loving God is um, what we're most lacking in contemporary Christianity. We're not very intent about it. You, you know what a fanatic is? Is a fanatic is someone who loves Jesus more than you do. And what we most fear about different types of Christians is like if we sense there's more commitment here than I want. But believe me, you can love God unwisely. You can be a fanatic in the sense that you're misdirected on a number of things. Been there, done that. Uh, but you can never love God too much. You could never love God enough. 
I've never heard of someone that says to their spouse, you just love me too much. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Would you stop buying me so many flowers? <laughs> so, second thing we covered was grace-based versus performance-based, and that's more than in the Christianity of our culture that's deeply rooted in our own sin natures. And so grace, coming to a, a deeper and deeper grace-based approach to God is itself a lifelong journey. So that's all the more review I'm going to do of that because I'm way behind schedule already. I'm about an hour behind already. Uh, number three, uh, we covered rediscovering and restoring the biblical and historical church. Many uh, historians have commented that the Protestant Reformation was the triumph of St. Augustine's views of grace and salvation over his views of the church. And so, um, you know, things like uh, uh, community and loving each other and, and, and uh, actually being on some kind of accountability and some kind of spiritual authority and so forth, certain, uh, certain types and approaches to Christianity take that for granted. You know, uh, we had... Um, Anvesh, Deannis, and Sindhu over for pizza late Friday night because we, we had a meeting with Michael and Jesse till what, about 10 or something? And then, and then so then we ordered a pizza and I went and picked up Sindhu on the way to, the, to get the pizza and, and she came over and we picked, ended up picking up Anvesh at the same time. And uh, then we ate pizza for a while and then of course Catherine being the sensible one went to bed and the rest of us decided to watch the, the movie Luther that was put, the one that was put together by uh, Trident Lutheran Financial that's a super high quality and very accurate to the history uh, uh, version of the history of Martin Luther and the, and the start of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, I of course fell asleep halfway through the movie as did Sindhu <laughs> but Anvesh and Deanna stayed up for the whole movie. But, um, you know, uh, one of the things that's, that's so interesting to me about the movie is that Luther's pastor said, you know, Luther's in this crisis and his pastor sends him to Wittenberg to get a, do a doctorate in theology. And, uh, and, and uh, Luther's like, I'm having a crisis in my faith and you're sending me away? And he says, I'm sending you to the scriptures, to Christ himself. But I thought it was interesting that in their particular version of Christianity, you know, uh, and this is still true in many like, a, you know, monastery orders or whatever, but, you, you know, there's authority. And Luther does it because he was told to do it. And uh, like we would just like, no, I've never heard a sermon other than myself on any kind of verse like Hebrews 13, 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them because they watch over your soul. No preacher would talk would read that verse today. No preacher would uh, talk read you know First Timothy five seventeen. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, which the Greek means double pay. Um, wouldn't it be nice if someday we actually had real salaries? What do you think, Dean? Uh, <laughs> So, you know, um, but the, uh, so the point is uh, the whole idea of the church and community and all that kind of stuff. They actually say, I was reading this ar uh, article written by a pastor who's now passed away, but the guy who pastors the chur church that, that was formed, I'm still very good friends with him, and they're in Beaver Creek, and they're called... Uh, Grace Covenant Church, right? Is that is that their name? Um, and uh, Craig, uh, what's his what's his last name? Uh, or Paul Craig? If Craig is his last name, Paul Craig. And um, so I was written, writing this uh, reading this article that they wrote because they uh, they were there were two dying Reformed Baptist churches, and you, some of you know what that means, Reformed Baptist. And as they were uh, kind of struggling with dying, they decided to save the churches by merging them. 
And there's a reason why there's more church splits than there are mergers in our day and age. Let me, it's a very difficult thing to merge churches. I've been involved in it a few times, and most people don't do it very well. These guys did it very, very well. But in their particular article, they actually said, you can tell how healthy a church is by how long the people stay after church to fellowship. And I thought, wow, I never had thought about that. And uh, you know, that was years ago that I read that, and I've monitored that ever since. A lot of churches, everyone's gone 10 to 15 minutes after the service is done. Uh, in our church, I, get a, I usually leave sometime between 4 and 6, and, because there's still people here talking to me till then. Last, last week I left at 6 p.m., and... Uh, and normally I finish my Sundays around 11 p.m. Uh, and I start at 3 or 4 in the morning and go straight through without a break. And it's because people sit, stay here three and four hours after church. Now, one key to that is serve food. But uh, if you feed them, they will come. Uh, so, all right. So getting into today's stuff, emphasis four is on leadership. Uh, we've done this for several weeks, so we looked at, uh, reread uh, point A there, the three statements about leadership, but for what we're doing today, it's important to understand that New Testament leadership is, a, is descriptive, not prescriptive. We don't have to have, you know, seven elders or three people called evangelists or anything like that. Uh, New Testament leadership, more you put a label on it after it's functioning that way. So I love watching little kids who are dressing up like their mom or their dad. And uh, because it's, you know, it's part of what you want to be when you're a kid. You want to be like your, your dad if you're a guy, and, and invite, uh, like your mom if you're a girl. And um, uh, that's just part of the way we're wired. And if you're, if you're in Christ, you have this passionate desire to be more like God. To be more Christ-like. And so your maturity will be directed by that desire. And so when it comes to things like elder, shepherd, things like that, what, what happens is God has called, uh, say, someone like Sam Mawante to be a shepherd. And he has that calling and that desire Years before it comes to pass. But that desire will direct you. You know, one of the things I've actually uh, known about Nathan Hager since he was about seven or eight. I used to always tease him because his name is Nathan. And, they, and the, the, the prophet Nathan pointed to David and said, thou art the man. So I used when I, at East Dayton Christian, I used to always tell Dayton, Nathan, you got to practice pointing at the guy and going, thou art the man. <laughs> and uh, whenever kids have biblical names, like whenever I see Elijah Bradbury, I, I always go, Kid, you got a lot to live up to. <laughs> and they just look at me like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> but, you know, uh, so, um, I especially do that, of course, for the biblical names. But um, descriptive versus prescriptive is huge deal. Because what happens is, York, I, I remember... Uh, I was 17 years old. I'd just become a Christian. Maybe by this time I was 18. And I'm in this conference, and a guy named Bob Mumford was speaking. And he said a particular point, and he emphasized it with like a hand clap. And it was like the power of the Holy Spirit shot through my body. And I, I said in my heart, that's what I want to be when I grow up. And I knew from day one when I became a Christian that, you know, I, I used to study the Bible on my knees at night so that I could not fall asleep. Uh, I was a little nutty when I was in college. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I literally would study on my knees so I could study longer uh, because I wanted to know God's Word so that someday I could teach it. Right? And so the whole thing of New Testament leadership is descriptive, and that it's charismatic and functional and organic, you're, you're, if you're, when you're called to these things that we're going to talk about today, 
you will know that uh, years before you're, you're actually functioning that way many times. And usually, people always go, well, how do I know what I'm called to? You'll have a desire for what you're called to, vocationally and everything. I always think it's funny that uh, both young ladies and young men uh, ask me, like, what if I have to marry an ugly guy? <laughs> and I go, well, God will change your heart in such a way that he won't be ugly to you. Because the, you can't let the world tell you what's beautiful and so forth. Uh, uh, you know, so, someone is beautiful because of who they are as a whole person. And you, ha you have eyes to see what they can't see. And I always tell guys, like, don't worry, worry about whether you're going to get married or not. What Abraham was, or what Adam was called to do was tend the garden. Become who you're supposed to be in Christ and be faithful in your responsibilities and God will be preparing the right person for you. And he'll bring them at the right time. And that's actually how it does work. You know, what if Adam had said, I'm going to, there's no help made suitable for me. I'm going to solve this problem. <laughs> he, it wouldn't have worked out very well, right? He, he went, like he tried all the dating sites. <laughs> and uh, Fig Leaves International. But uh, <laughs> you know, just, just focus on growing up in every way. Like, you know, Christian maturity is not just uh, knowing Bible verses. It's vocational maturity. It's knowing how to manage money. It's having great relationship skills. It's having great sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. It's learning how to do conflict resolution well. Christian maturity is a whole concept because God created all of us. And when he got done creating the world, he said at various days, he said what? It was good. But on the sixth day, he created a naked man and a naked woman married for a sexual relationship. And then he said, it's very good. It was only good up till then. <laughs> then it was very good. And so uh, the truth is, one of the problems with American Christianity is we tend to think spiritual things are good and things like getting a, a master's degree in business and become, or becoming an engineer is not that as spiritual as reading your Bible, but it is. And learning how to do money well. You know, that was another thing I used to always talk about to Nathan about back when, uh, let's just say he... Uh, didn't have the best track record in keeping jobs and so forth at, at, at that time. And one of the reasons I know that he's growing so much in the Lord is after he got this idea to, to, get a, to go through a thing from Green County and how to do heating and air conditioning, he's had nothing but promotions, 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 promotions. And who you are at work doesn't lie. Does that make sense? Like, you know, you don't, you don't, you might get a couple promotions if you uh, are a squirrely guy or a little bit, you know, manipulative or smart, but you won't be able to sustain uh, that kind of direction and success and so forth. You know, Daniel Williams, a guy on our, on our leadership council, uh, you know, when he had an internship, you know what I knew already before he did? That, it, that they're going to offer him a job, which they did, right? Because why? Because he's Daniel Williams, and he's Christ-like. Right? So, all right, so let's get into this. We also looked, we looked at priests and priesthood. All we're going to remind ourselves is that all people in the New Testament are called to be priests. Some denominations call their pastors priests. We don't want to quibble with that and be divisive. But the truth is, Melody Burks is a priest to God. Right? Noel is a priest to God. David Furlow is a priest to God. Zachary Burks is called to the priesthood. 
And you are called to do what priests do. Worship God. Enjoy his presence. Be filled with his spirit. Uh, study his word. Practice his word. Teach his word. Ezra 7.10. Ezra the priest had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, to practice it, and to teach his commandments in Israel. That's what priests do. All right. So then we looked uh, at... The words for overseers, bishops, presbyters, there's some definitions there. And uh, um, there we go. Uh, so we, the, we did that. Uh, we looked at what overseers, elders, bishops, presbyters. There's a debate whether uh, there's such a thing as deaconesses or is he discussing deacons' wives? And uh, I actually believe that it should be deaconesses, but again, it's not something we're willing to quibble with other Christians, how they practice it or what they call it. But restoring these things to the church is actually super necessary for a lot of reasons. You know, one of the things that happens in a lot of versions of Christianity is in the name of submission, too many women's gifts are squelched and women don't have a strong enough voice in the church and ministries and things of that nature. Um, you know, that's why we have women worship leaders, women, you know, Catherine does her series on church history, and, and uh, she's doing Luther next week, right? So, um, uh, you know, that's, you know, Teresa does the scripture reading and so forth. You know, it's, it's important that uh, in the name of complementarianism, there are different functions for, for men and women in many ways in the household, in the family, and so forth. But they have to be very based on they're both created equal before God in importance, in giftedness, uh, in, uh, in, you know, no one is has special privileges or any of that kind of stuff. And the greatest thing you can be is a servant. We'd have a lot less problems with uh, all the gender issues that Christianity's under attack about if we, if we were better servant leaders. Because, you know, nobody is, uh, gets too upset at the person who takes out the trash that, that they think they're you know, privilege. All right. Well, I did so much with reviewing, I'm not going to get into the message today, except for I, I think I will do this part at, at the bottom of page one where it says getting oriented. And I'll just read um, at least one of these introductory verses. There's uh, four groups of verses that I put there. I'll at least get through the Ephesians 4, 7, and 8 one. So, uh, th this is sometimes uh, misunderstood. First, first of all, let's remind ourselves what the idea of a locus classicus is. A locus classicus is based on a theological idea that any subject you need to take into account all Scripture. So if we're going to talk about uh, repentance, we need to consider Genesis to Revelation on the subject. But generally in most subjects, there will be one or maybe two or even three sometimes scriptures that address that issue most completely and most directly. Does that make sense? And so if you're going to study like, should Christians drink wine? You know, there's a few verses that you would want to start with as the center of your argument. Like in the Psalms, it says, God made wine to make man's heart glad. And of course, today, if you were talking to most many evangelicals, they'd say, that's the Old Testament. Of course, in the Old Testament, you are actually commanded to take a percentage of the tithe and use it to, to buy strong drink, which was, which was not beer or wine, it was liquor, uh, to celebrate before the Lord. Uh, you know, and then in Ephesians, of course, I think it's 4.15, Paul says, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
And so you don't have to tell people not to be drunk with wine if they're not supposed to drink any at all. Paul would have said, don't drink wine. He's saying, don't drink too much wine. Uh, so you would start there, and then you would m build out from there. You'd consider that Jesus made 120 to 180 gallons of wine at the wedding of Cana. That seemed, that's kind of weird. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and uh, you would, you know, and et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, there's warnings in Proverbs about drinking too much, especially red wine, for whatever reason. So, you know, you, uh, the idea of a locus classicus is there's going to be one or maybe just a handful of verses that deal with that issue directly. You put those in the center of your argument, and then you think out from there. So hopefully I can at least just do Ephesians 4, 7, and 8, and then we'll... we'll pick it up from there next week. In Ephesians 4, 7, and 8, the whole chapter, of course, Ephesians, you always want to put things in context. So I have a little saying that I hope you can memorize. It'll help you if you do. That the book of Ephesians, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, is about the church of Jesus Christ. And his letter to the Colossians is about the Christ of the church. So if you want to study Christology, Colossians would be a good place to start. If you want to study the church, Ephesians is a really good place to start. And it's quite arguable, and many commentators believe, that of all the letters in the New Testament, Ephesians is written to the most mature church of all the churches in the New Testament. In fact, in the seven letters in, to Reve, in Revelation, uh, the, the, the portion to Ephesus re, tells them, I have this against you, you've left your first love, uh, return to your first love. He, but he commends them for how stable, mature, and complete they are in so many ways. But he says, you, you, you've lost that inner core of, of, the, of zealousness Return to point number one, the love of God, as Nathan tried to help us do this morning. So uh, Ephesians is, a, is a, of all the books of the New Testament, much like you could say Corinthians, first Corinthians especially, but then and second Corinthians, are the letters of the New Testament that are directed toward the most immature churches, and in fact, uh, First and Second Corinthians have the mo are probably the most helpful letters of the New Testament for Americans, because so much of our Christianity is so similar to the issues that were in Corinth, and our and so much of our because uh, we're living in a time that a lot of psychologists, you know, starting with Christopher Lash's great study of the '70s called the culture of narcissism, there are now a lot of Christian authors that are arguing that the, the culture of narcissism is 10 times more narcissistic than what, Pete, than what Christopher Lash was addressing in the 70s. We've become much more me people. It's much harder to get people, you know, like we have trouble getting people that are single to 930 church. And I always think that's so funny. Like, like really? You know, like you don't, you know, like you don't have 12 kids and three jobs, and, and you can't get to 930 church. Uh, uh, you know, that cracks me up. And, and the idea of maybe, you know, putting God first for an extra hour when I only got six hours of sleep instead of 12 is, you know, kind of hard to sell in our culture because we're more selfish. And, uh, you know, we have all kinds of loves uh, for this and that, that are more that more take us away from our relationship with God than help our relationship with God. We love our, you know, our dog and our cat and our car and our clothing and our jewelry and and uh, you know and whatever. But you know, you know, the the point is that that I'm not trying to pick on narcissism. If you want to be a narcissist. Uh, but I am saying that it's a little bit difficult to reconcile that with the gospel. <laughs> That's, and being narcissistic competes with loving God. 
You know, if you want to put an addition on, on Nathan's message this morning, you know, say one of the problems that would keep you from doing what Nathan was advocating and preaching is when you love yourself too much. And you got, and, uh, you know, the great uh, Puritan preacher Jonathan Edwards uh, always preached about what he called the religious affections. And he says, before you come to Christ, you know, you love your cat, you love your Uncle Bob, you, you love your job, you love uh, having a nicer house. You, you have all kinds of things that are stealing the love of God in your heart. And what it means to journey with Christ is to kill more and more of those things because you're falling more and more in love with God and less and less and less in love with the things that compete with God. And that's, in a sense, what sanctification just means to be set apart to God. And you can't be set apart to God if you're enslaved to eating too many ice cream sandwiches. Ask me how I know. <laughs> I can't love God in Klondike bars <laughs> at the same time. <laughs> so, uh, you know, the other day I was uh, suggesting that after pizza we watch a movie, but I said, why don't we, and Deanna thought I was going to suggest that we go to Kroger's to get ice cream sandwiches, because I have at times. So she was like, I'm not going to Kroger's to get the ice cream sandwiches. <laughs> I'm like... I haven't, I actually haven't had an ice cream sandwich in probably a year now, or well, six months. I haven't had any, (laughs) maybe three months, I don't know. (laughs) Pinocchio's nose starting to grow. All right, anyway, back to Ephesians 4. Uh, But to each one of us, this is kind of a locus classicus about this whole subject of leadership. Um, is what I'm getting to. Uh, but to each one of us, I haven't been very, uh, you know, the, uh, the cost of getting three hours sleep two nights in a row. Um, gets, I get a little spacey. But um, we had a great call to India yesterday <laughs> after three hours of sleep. Um, but to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Therefore, when he ascended on high, he led captive, a host of captives, and he, of course, that's Christ, gave gifts to man. So the first thing I actually want to talk about, and then we'll get into the, the gifts of helps, administrations, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers, uh, we're going to get into them in what I would call backwards order, uh, because, of course, in Ephesians, they're listed as apostles, prophets, and so forth. But I believe that giftedness starts with the gift of helps, uh, and for some people, it, it progresses to the gift of administrations. And th- those are necessary progress- progressions before you get the gift of being a shepherd and a teacher. And what a shepherd and a teacher uh, are, uh, and an evangelist put together, when someone is a shepherd and teacher and an evangelist at the same time, uh, eventually that graduates into being an, an, an apostle. And there really are apostles today. That's a debatable subject. We'll talk about the three kinds of apostles in, in the week uh, next week. Uh, and there are not apostles like the original 12, nor like Paul. But there are apostles like Barnabas and Timothy and, and Junius and people like that that are, that are discussed, uh, that are called apostles in the New Testament. There are still those type of apostles today. And um, if we went about, instead of having just district coordinator and that kind of stuff, if we went about restoring the leadership of the church to being the biblical functions uh, and not just biblical titles, but biblical functions. That's why that point that it's functional before it's hierarchical is so important. We, we need people who are actually functioning as prophets. We need people who are actually functioning as evangelists. We have lots of people who are called evangelists in the scriptures or in the church today, and they go around and give Sunday night revivals at churches, and they're called an evangelist, but are, but are they like an evangelist, like Philip the evangelist was an evangelist? So that's what we're going to be dealing with in the next few weeks. But foundational to that is this verse in Ephesians 4 
that he, Jesus, when he ascended, he gave gifts to man. So this is very, very important for you to hear. Jesus didn't just give gifts to the church. There's a, there's a kind of theology today that is, is called the two-kingdom theology, and uh, it's the idea that Christ reigns over the church, uh, but he doesn't reign over all of the world. But Christ reigns over all. And God's gifts of shepherds, teachers, helps, administrations, all these are actually gifts that are given to all people. Does that make sense? Now, that's not to say that there are people outside of Christ that are teachers or shepherds or apostles. But it is to say that our, these gifts are meant to affect a lot more than just the church that you're serving. Does that make sense? There's a, a, a very nice movement in the church today where lots of Christians from different ways of thinking are asking, if your church left such and such neighborhood, would anybody notice in that neighborhood? And uh, that one of the reasons I want to get back to doing our whiz kids and reading in the school and stuff, to be honest, if we left this building, nobody in the, in the, within a mile or three around here would even know or care except for the pastor across the street <laughs> who likes our church and comes to talk to me about, well, how are you guys doing that? Because like, they don't have anybody under 70 in their church. And, I'm, uh, and we're praying for people over 70. <laughs> and uh, and the, look, right now it looks like the only way that we're going to get there is that I'll be over 70 before you know it. So, what's that? <laughs> I'm not in a hurry to add birthdays. Right? So, um, you know, so uh, the first thing I just want to say is that leadership, uh, you know, we, the ideas of things like, you know, obey your leaders and submit to them, whatever, are so radical and controversial in our culture. The first thing you got to understand is these are gifts from Christ. And if we don't nourish, cultivate, and promote those gifts, then we are going to miss out on what Christ wants to do. Much like I started by talking about Isaiah 58, and we, don't, we were saying, if, we, if you never fast, you're going to miss a ton of blessings that are specifically promised to people who fast with the right attitudes. And it, it's about as clear as if I said, would you like me to give you $100 a week just for the fun of it? Most of you would say, is there any strings attached? What do, I, do, I have to, do I have to do any chores or clean the church building or, you know, or anything? And if there's, the answer is no, you'd take the $100 a week gladly. You know, like if you had to manage an extra $100 a week, you could probably figure it out. Right? <laughs> you know, so uh, the truth of the matter is if you don't, use God's gift of fasting, there's all kinds of $100 bills that you're passing up, so to speak. Not, not that they're just material. That's just an analogy, and of course. Uh, but it's the same thing with the gifts of helps, administrations, you know, things like deaconesses that we talked about last week. If we don't nourish and cultivate and promote those things, then we're going to be missing out on a, a very necessary ingredients of what God wants to do in our midst. And so, you know, people, uh, I have a good friend that's a pastor of the Assemblies of God Church at Bethel Christian named Pastor Brown. We talk all the time. And he says, Greg, nobody disciples like you guys do. And I, and he kind of means it like, is that sustainable to, you know, uh, I've, I have pastors all the time say to me, you know, like Nathan was just t teaching some guys this week how to do their taxes and how to budget and so forth. And pastors say to me all the time, like, no, I've never heard of a church that does as much for the people as your church does in terms of 
teaching them, giving them, serving them, and so forth. But, you know, whether it's, it's a common practice or done elsewhere or popular is never actually an issue. The issue is, is it in the Bible? And the truth of the matter is, Jesus, although he ministered to big crowds, Jesus mostly invested in a small group of people. And that's even, you know, when uh, in the story of Gideon and the Ephraimites and all these, there's various biblical times where God says, no, you can't take that many people. I, because God actually does a lot of the great things he does in history with small groups of people that get dedicated enough. And the issue is going to be, can we get everyone here at 930 or not? Because if we're not dedicated enough, we're never going to get done what God's calling us to do. What God's calling us to do doesn't require uh, seven people. As Nathan, Nathan pointed this out in his sermon today, uh, uh, which, you know, frankly, there's 20 people sitting in the, in the pews today. Uh, maybe one or two of whom missed it that had a good reason to miss it. But about 90% of the people who missed it didn't really have good reasons to miss it. It wasn't because God called them to miss it. You know, <laughs> it, it wasn't because they were fasting and praying so intensely that they, uh, it was because they had an extra deep relationship with their Sealy Posturpedic. And, uh, and they didn't plan on, they didn't spend enough time seeking God. You know, like when, when church starts is, church starts on Saturday night when you prepare by how much time you spend with the Lord and what time you go to bed. And getting, and what time, you know, I, I actually sh shave, shower, do my weekly haircut, all that stuff on Fridays and Saturdays, prepare the message, even pick out what tie I'm going to wear. Uh, <laughs> you know, all of that, I, not, I don't do any of that on Sunday morning. Because otherwise I'll miss John Luke leading the good worship at 8.30. Which I have enough, hard enough time being on time for anyway. So, um, and honestly, that's, uh, Jesus gave gifts to men. And some of that gift involves, you've got to start taking seriously that you're called to be a shepherd, you're called to be a teacher, you're called to be an evangelist. And are you actually, if you step back and look at your day, and if you step back and look at your week, are we taking the right steps to get there? Are we clear about who we're becoming in the Lord? And are we clear about what the plan is to get there? And I assure you that the idea of sending people to cemetery uh, to, to produce leaderships is not a biblical idea. You know, Jesus and the New Testament, they equipped the church from within. And it really gets down to you know, David Yamarte and David Furlow are called to a course of study and discipleship to become uh, first helps in administrations, eventually shepherds, teachers, evangelists, uh, and eventually probably members of apostolic teams so that one church becomes a hundred churches. And the way life works is, the, is very clear Anything that's healthy reproduces. You know, it's a big issue in our culture because we don't have any moral compass or any Christianity left or whatever, you know, whether we should give condoms to teenagers and all this nonsense. But the truth of the matter is healthy bodies start to reproduce unless you do something intentional not to. Right? And of course, the Christian way is to wait till you know to wait till you're married. Uh, how you know, however that principle applied, Christians reproduce Christians, and we're living in a time where a very significant percentage of Christians 
have never brought anybody to Christ and, and into Christian maturity. We actually think the way you're supposed to do this Christian life is you're supposed to do this Christian life by I invite people to church and I hope the professional guys get them saved. That is not, you can't find that in the Bible. Anywhere. What you do is you produce, you know, Philip was just a guy who served with tables in, in Acts chapter 6. And he eventually, by Acts chapter 8, is turning the whole city upside down for Christ. And he's the only guy in the New Testament who's actually called an evangelist. So uh, the, the truth of the matter is biblical leadership is reproduced very intentionally by discipleship, not by uh, degrees and certifications from Bible schools. And again, nobody emphasizes having the right amount of knowledge and study and all that more than we do. You, that ingredient has to be there. But you don't necessarily have to have a piece of paper that says you get, that you have that knowledge. You actually have to have it. <laughs> That's the real issue. Is it, in, is it who you are? Well, I've gone way over as usual. But uh, despite all the um, segues and so forth, if you got the core points, it, it should actually change how you live. Like, you need to, you need to take away from this like, in terms of helps, administrations, teachers, shepherds, evangelists, am I called to these things? What is one of those? And am I doing the right things to get there? And if you can't answer all of that yes, then I'm suggesting to you, you're missing something that's supposed to happen in the first week you're a Christian. You should be called to that kind of stuff as you come to receive Jesus Christ. So as John Gray comes to uh, lead us in the Lord's Supper, I encourage you to take that away. Like, you know, find out what you're called to be and, and find out if you have an actual plan to get there. And uh, submit that plan to some guys who did, did get there and say, is this a plan that will get me there? Amen.